Good evening. Am I good as far as audio goes? Got this on right? Okay. If you'll open your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, I confess I forgot to check the page number in the Pew Bible. So if somebody's got it, yell it out. Galatians 5. 974. Thank you, Brenda. Galatians 5, page 974 in your Pew Bibles. We're going to read verses 16 through 26 together. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, but under the inspiration of God himself, says these words. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we desperately need your word. Uh, We're aware, I'm aware, that life and wisdom aren't found in ourselves, isn't found in me for sure. Life and wisdom is found in you and your revelation of yourself to us in the scriptures. And so we come to you very much in need that you would teach us and that your spirit, who is spoken of in this passage, would be at work in our thinking as we listen to the scriptures so that these words transform us. And I pray for the Spirit's help for me that I would articulate these truths, these life-changing truths with clarity uh, for my own sake and for the sake of the hearer. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dig into uh, the meat of of the message tonight, I want to give two notes. The first note is that uh, I am indebted for many things in the the sermon I'm about to preach to, uh, we could say, three men. The first would be the Apostle Paul. But but two others uh, who have really shaped my thinking on this text and the topic that we'll be addressing. Um, And those would be Dr. Piper, John Piper, and Francis Schaeffer. Um, I often find it helpful for my own soul to listen to others' sermons on a topic so that I myself will come under the word before I preach it. And I know that their influence will come out throughout the sermon. I will try to uh, point that out maybe in one or two places where I'm particularly borrowing their ideas. But, but I just want to say overall, um, I want to acknowledge my debt to them. 
And then the second thing is that I will not be pursuing a verse-by-verse exposition of Galatians 5, 16 through 26 tonight. Um, I am rather trying to address a theme that runs all through the, Gal- the book of Galatians and really all through the Bible and is sort of tied together here in, in Galatians 5. So I kind of think of this um, like a batter running the bases and home plate is Galatians 5. So we'll run the bases and hopefully wind up in Galatians 5 somewhere at the end. Um, so with that in mind, I want to draw your attention to this little book, um, I know Sawyer may be familiar with it. It's the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. How many of us, I'm curious, have read all or part of this little book? I'm curious. It's pretty famous. So uh, Ben Franklin, of course, is America's ultimate self-made man. Some people call him the first American. Sort of the example of American values incarnate, right? And at the end of his life, Franklin wrote a witty, insightful autobiography of himself. Uh, I remember studying in high school... And one of the most interesting passages to me is where Franklin recalls his own attempt somewhere in the middle of his life, I think he was maybe in his 30s or 40s at the time, his own attempt to arrive at perfection. And he explicitly says that's what he was trying to do. Um, It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, that is his own nature, custom, or company, culture, influences, might lead me into. As I knew, or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one, do what was right, and not the other. And then he begins several pages of explanation of how this project works. And the first part of the project was for him to identify 13 virtues. And he was pretty sure that between these 13, he'd pretty much covered the whole gamut of virtues that anybody could want someone to live by. So I'd like to read those virtues for you. And I'm curious what you think of them. Here they go. Temperance. Silence. Order. Resolution. Frugality. Industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. So there it is. According to Franklin, all of human virtue summed up in 13 words. And Franklin actually created a little ledger book for himself. And in that ledger book, he was able to keep track of his progress or really his failures of those 13 virtues. So there were 13 columns. And the idea was that he would work through a 13-week program. And the first week, he would focus on the first virtue. And assuming that in about a week's time, he'd mastered it, he would move on to the next virtue the next week. But he would also keep track of the first virtue, and he would make a mark in his little book each time he had a failure in any of them. And progressing that way, he figured in 13 weeks he would be able to weed out of his life any failures in any of those 13 virtues. He effectively set up a ladder for himself, a ladder of 13 rungs that he could climb one at a time all the way to moral perfection. So what do you think? What do you think of those 13 virtues? For many of us, especially those of us who are younger, who are thoroughly modern or maybe even postmodern people, we might see some gaps. 
in the list, and we might add a few things. Empathy, environmental friendliness, tolerance or coexistence, racial justice, self-care, body positivity, self-respect, self-discovery. And probably, uh, we are modern enough to know that perfection isn't attainable, but we might put something else like self-actualization or self-fulfillment at the top of that ladder. That's what we're climbing for. What do you think? Is the list any better now? Well, what if, instead of Franklin's list or my own postmodern list, what if we substituted the Ten Commandments? What do you think then? Would that be an effective approach to godliness? Pastor Mark has been preaching through the Ten Commandments for, I don't know, two or three months now, right? And we've gone through each commandment now to number eight with care, noting not just the uh, immediate, visible, outward application of each commandment, but the internal application too. So what if we make a little record book, and at the top of the ladder is God's approval, and it's got ten massive rungs, and we start to climb that ladder towards God's approval. Is that the Christian way of life? Well, my thesis tonight, and I believe Paul's thesis in the book of Galatians, is that if you are trying to climb a ladder to become a Christian, the Ten Commandments or any other ladder of moral and uh, uh, spiritual perfection, you have missed the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of the gospel. And if you're already a Christian and you are attempting to climb a moral or spiritual ladder to become a better Christian, you have missed the secret of the Christian life. So I have two basic points tonight. Number one is the problem with ladder climbing. And number two is the power of the Spirit. So let's start with the problem with ladder climbing. When I'm using this metaphor of ladder climbing, which, by the way, I borrowed from John Piper, I'm speaking of any path to moral or spiritual self-improvement, any, any attempt to become a better person or even a better Christian, a person acceptable to God or maybe even acceptable to yourself. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter of Galatians, was no stranger to ladder climbing. In fact, he grew up as a Jew. He grew up in the ultimate ladder-climbing society. And not all ladders are created equal, but Paul had the very best of them. Because along with the rest of his Jewish community, Paul had God's own law. When we think of the law, which is given in the Old Testament, which Paul grew up studying, I want us to think of two things. And these are two related definitions of the law. They're not the exact same thing, but they are related to one another. The first definition for the law is God's own character. The Hebrew scriptures reveal in hundreds of commandments 
the perfect, beautiful, unblemished, moral character of God. And it's good. Perfectly good in every way because God is perfectly good in every way. And this included and ultimately culminates in the Ten Commandments. Because those commandments show us what God himself is like. Even if, as Pastor Mark drew our attention this morning to the fact that the Eighth Commandment isn't just about not stealing, it's about the generosity of God's own character. We look into that law and we see God himself in his perfection revealed. So that's the first definition of the law. God's own character revealed to you and me in the Old Testament scriptures. But the second definition of the law is the system that God set up for the ancient Israelites under Moses. In other words, God didn't just tell them what he was like. God took all of those commandments together that revealed him. And then he effectively set them up as a ladder. With his favor at the top. And death at the bottom. And he said, do this. Climb these rungs and you will live. Fail to do it and you will die. Start climbing. And every Israelite was born into that system. The ladder climbers club of the Old Testament. And circumcision which Paul speaks of extensively in Galatians, was the entrance ritual that marked you out as someone who was part of this particular ladder-climbing club under this particular arrangement, the law of Moses. So this ladder was God-given. It is the best of all ladders. So what's the problem with it? Well, the problem with the ladder the law of Moses, is the same as the problem with every other ladder, including Ben Franklin's ladder. A ladder is only as strong as the person climbing it. In other words, there's no problem with God's moral character. The problem is inside you and me. There's no problem with the Ten Commandments. The problem is with the people who are called to keep them. And that problem is called the flesh. When scripture speaks of the flesh, and it appears in our passage that we read earlier, Galatians chapter 5, it's speaking of your human nature. What you came into the world with. What every human being, except for one, has come into the world with since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Your human nature is both sinful and weak. And it's because it's both sinful and weak that the ladder of God's law can never get you to his holiness. Romans 8.3 says that the law, God's good, perfect law, was weakened by our flesh. It's like you and I are standing at the bottom of an inconceivably tall, massive ladder, rung after rung, stretching off into the clouds beyond our sight, and each rung is so massive, you can't even get your arms around it. There's nothing wrong with that ladder. 
but there is something wrong with you. And no matter how much you want to climb that ladder, you are too weak to do it. And the Old Testament people of God discovered this over and over again. Generation after generation, they tried and failed and tried and failed. And they never attained the righteousness of the law. Not a single one ever got to the top of the ladder. And Franklin himself, even though he wrote his own ladder, rather than looking to God's inspired word for it, he himself admitted that he couldn't get to perfection either. And at the end of his investigation, acknowledged that it was impossible. But it's not just that you're too weak to climb this ladder. It's also that you're sinful. Your human nature, your flesh, as Paul would call it, is actually bent against God and his holiness. And even while you climb the ladder, there's a part of you that hates the ladder because the ladder reveals just how different God is from you. Galatians 5 describes what our flesh is really like. Did you notice that? The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is what your human nature and my human nature naturally gravitate to. Now, I just want to be clear. We may look in our own lives and we may not immediately see all of those things. And that's because we're good at hiding one sin under another. We hide our impurity under our pride. We hide our idolatry under our self-righteousness. But at the end of the day, it's always the same flesh bent against God and his holiness that keeps coming through. And you and I know this by experience. You and I know that as we try to climb that ladder of perfection, we find that there's something in ourself that rebels against the very ladder we are climbing. There's something that longs to throw it all away and go our own way. And if that's what we're like in the deepest, most natural part of us, then God's law has the ultimate effect of making us frustrated and resentful inside. So I want us to look briefly at a couple of scriptures that show the effect of ladder climbing on you and me in the flesh. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 7. Verse 5, Paul writes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring forth fruit for death. So there we are, climbing the ladder in our own muscle power. But deep inside of us, our own nature is rebelling against it. And the result is that we always ultimately fall off the ladder and we end up in death look down at verse 7 
What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is not sin. The law is good, right? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, thou shalt not covet. So Paul himself acknowledges that it is the law that opened his eyes to the reality of his own depravity. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in, in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life produced, uh, proved to be death to me. If you look a few pages back, in Romans 3, verse 20, Paul says something very similar. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So as you and I look up the massive ladder of God's law and attempt to keep it, the only effect is that it shows us more and more that we don't. And if the top of the ladder is God's favor and the bottom of the ladder is death, then the effect of the law is to condemn you and me in our own eyes and more importantly, in the eyes of God. That's why Paul himself, looking at the law of Moses in first, or 2 Corinthians 3, calls it the ministry or administration of death and the administration of condemnation. It's not a problem with the law it is a problem with you. It's a problem with me. So let's make this practical because I am in a room full of ladder climbers and there's one in the pulpit. We live in a world full of ladder climbers. We, by nature, because of that very sinful nature that keeps us from God, that very sinful nature also keeps us relying upon ourselves. You look deep inside for something that isn't there. Something that was broken thousands of years before your birth in the fall of Adam. That flesh can never enable you to take one step up the ladder of God's righteousness. And yet we keep going back to it. And it comes out in things we say. We say things like, I just need some more time to work on myself, to become a better person. Or in other words, I just need to climb a little harder. Or this isn't really who I am. I can do better than this. You can? Your flesh? Some of us think that we just need a little help from God. And then we can climb the ladder. Franklin thought that. In fact, he famously said, God helps those who help themselves. As you climb the ladder, God will give you a little bump. That's because Franklin didn't understand the you who was climbing. Deep down, that person is an enemy of God and his holy character. And no amount of divine Bump 
can allow you to climb. There's also out there an anti-ladders club. Some of us might hear what I'm talking about and say, well, I'm not trying to climb a ladder because I think I'm fine as I am. Well, if you're in that group, I have news for you. You're actually still a ladder climber. It's just that you've created your own ladder and declared that you're already at the top. It's cheating, but it's natural. But in any case, you're still dependent on you. You're content with your own self. It is still the flesh underneath that impulse. So it's all the same system. It's all about relying on the power of you, the power of the flesh. And the system of the flesh always leads to two things. To pride, which is the ultimate rebellion against God. And to despair. And many many of us have known that it produces a weird mixture of both. Pride and despair in alternating layers over and over again. But the one thing it can never do is lead you to God. Now, that makes us ask, why then did God set the ladder up in the first place? And the answer is that he set it up so that you would discover this very reality. He set it up so that you would discover that you cannot come to him in the flesh. In fact, the law is a schoolmaster, a painful teacher to show you something about you. And Paul said as much in Galatians 3, 24. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And I like the way the King James Version renders this one. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That impossible ladder teaches you an extremely painful lesson that you are on the way to death and that you cannot do anything about it. Since the fall, the human race is a collection of self-reliant, self-satisfied ladder climbers. And so, God gave us his law so that we could see just how impossible it is for us to get ourselves to God and to life. And when you come to that realization, then you're exactly where God wants you to be. Because we realize that if we're going to get life, then we actually need God to break in into our corrupted world and give it to us. We cannot climb to him. He must come to us. And that brings me to my second point, which is the power of the Spirit. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And I'm going to begin a few sentences earlier, actually. Let's begin with verse 10. For all who rely on the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. There's the ladder, and there's your failure, and there's the consequence. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is here in Galatians that Paul opens up to us God's solution for failing ladder climbers. And the solution has two parts, two members of the Trinity. The first solution is that the Son of God came and took on flesh. And in human flesh, he climbed all the way up the ladder and achieved perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. He won in his own person the approval of God. What you could not do, Christ has done. And yet, even though he's the only one who made it to the top, he took the curse at the bottom for you. He came under God's judgment. He bore the curse of the law, the wrath of God against sinners like you and me. And having borne the curse for you and climbed the ladder for you, he is willing to take the reward at the top and hand it to you. Hand it to everyone who receives it by faith. So, instead of attempting to climb the ladder to achieve the righteousness of God, Jesus offers you that righteousness as a gift. You cannot become righteous by climbing, but he can give you his righteousness if he chooses. And he does choose to give it to you, to everyone who relies upon him and stops climbing the ladder, to everyone who rests in his death and resurrection. So the first solution for ladders climbers is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the only ladder climber who succeeded. But the second part of God's solution for ladder climbers is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that I just read in Galatians 3, verse 14, the last phrase, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When broken ladder climbers who see our own sin for what it is turn to Christ and look to him for his perfect righteousness, not only does he give you a legal standing before God of forgiveness, but he also gives you the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell you. And that Holy Spirit makes you a new person. There is new life available to everyone who comes to Jesus. And this is what he told Nicodemus, the ultimate ladder climber, in John chapter 3. Do you remember that conversation? Jesus is talking with a man called the teacher of Israel, one of the most moral, religious, successful men of his age. 
And Jesus says, you can't get to the kingdom of God by ladder climbing. You must be born again. And what he means is this. When you turn to God by faith, he can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He can make you into a new person and put a new nature within you. So, stop climbing. I plead with you, if you are a ladder climber, don't keep striving for what you will never achieve. Rest in the only one who already made it to the top. And he will give you his righteousness, and he will give you his spirit, and he will make you new. But having come to Jesus, you and I are still not the persons we ought to be. And now I want to speak to you who are believers. Because even though God has put his spirit inside of you, that old flesh, that old nature, has not disappeared. Now Paul does say that the flesh is crucified for every believer. And by that he means that the the flesh is no longer the fundamental part of you. The fundamental part of you is the new nature that God has created by his Holy Spirit. But the old nature is still there, and there's a war. And you see that in our passage, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh, that's the old nature still inside of you, and the desires of the spirit, I'm sorry, are against the desires of the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh For these are opposed to each other. So there's a war inside of every believer. And as we struggle in that war, I must ask you, brothers and sisters, what are we to do? How do we move forward in the Christian life? You have come to Christ. You have received his righteousness by faith and his Holy Spirit indwells you. And yet every day you face this frustrating, disappointing, embarrassing reality of your own remaining corruption. And those works of the flesh that are listed, that awful list pops out of you and me. And so we don't do the things that we want. So what is the way forward in the Christian life? One option would be to go back to the ladder. And that was the answer of the Galatian Christians to whom Paul was writing. Perhaps like some of us, they propped the ladder back up again. And and I think there were probably a variety of ways of doing this in the Galatian church. Perhaps some of them still hung on to Jesus as the safety net in case they fell off the ladder. But they'd come to the conclusion that if they were going to move forward in this battle, they would have to climb it themselves. They would have to fight it themselves. And if that's the way you think, then Paul has good news for you. There is another way. You, in fact, will never succeed, even as a believer, if you try to live the Christian life that way. If you pull out your ledger book like Benjamin Franklin and start trying to weed out every bit of remaining corruption in yourself. It's an impossible battle. Even though you are a new creature, the flesh is still too strong for that. So what is Paul's solution? It's this. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, Paul has hard words for you if you are trying to continue your Christian life as a ladder climber. He says this, Having begun by the Spirit, do you really think you can now be perfected by your flesh? Do you really think those old muscles that could never get you justified can now get you sanctified? Jesus put it this way, the spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Do you really believe that, Christian? There's only one source of power for new life to be expressed in your daily walk, and that power is not you, it is the Holy Spirit. You still need power from outside. I still need power from outside. I don't have the power in myself to become the person I ought to be, and neither do you. I had an experience several weeks ago that shaped my desire to preach on this passage. I was struggling with the flesh. I was uh, frustrated. I had a number of things. I don't remember what all of them were. Um, And I was finding in my own self these works of the flesh coming out. And I happened to be here on the church property, and I don't even remember why I was here, but I was coming up from the fellowship hall, wrestling with all this in my own mind. And do you know what is in the stairway, like on the fellowship hall stairway, right in the landing, in the middle of the stairway? There's a big bulletin board there. Do you know what it has on it? The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And I looked at that and I thought, that's what I am not right now. And that's what I really want to be. And then I had to ask myself, how do I get there? My friends, that list is not another ladder. You don't look at that list and create a ledger book. And day by day, try to keep track of how loving you can be that day. How patient, peaceful, joyful, and self-controlled. That's not what Paul is calling you to. And that's not the secret of the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life is to walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, He produces fruit in you. Something organic happens when you and I can somehow get ourselves in sync with the Spirit of God and let His power flow into us. The character that you can never achieve by climbing a ladder, that perfect character of God, that character he will produce in you himself. So Paul uses the imagery of a tree. And it's very similar to the imagery that Jesus used in John 17 of a vine. Just as the branch does not work, to make fruit. It simply opens itself to the power coming from the vine. So you and I cannot manufacture the character of God with our flesh. Instead, we open ourselves to the power that flows from the Spirit of God. So the language Paul uses is, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, And then if you look forward a few verses, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, and again you see in verse 25, walk by the Spirit. 
there are two analogies that I have found helpful in trying to understand what this looked like. The first is the tree. But the second comes from John Piper, and he used the illustration of a train and a train track. And he said that to be led by the Spirit is is like a train car being led by an engine. The engine pulls it along. And Piper furthered the analogy by saying the train track is that law of God, the perfect character of God you can't produce in yourself. But when you are led by the Spirit, like a train car is led by an engine, that Spirit will carry you, will pull you down the train track. So the remaining question then is, how do you do that? If it's not by climbing a ladder, but instead by opening myself to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to produce change in me, how do I do that? Well, all over the book of Galatians and all over the Bible, you will find there is one simple word. Faith. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul speaks of his own experience. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, it's not about me anymore. And my Christian life is not lived ultimately by me anymore, but by Christ himself. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith. So here you and I are, still in the flesh, still in the body, still in this war between natures. How do we live that kind of life? Answer, by faith. If you look over at Galatians 5, verse 20, it says the same thing. I'm sorry, 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So if we want to take our train car illustration one step further, for you as a believer, the coupling between the engine, God's Holy Spirit, the only thing that can produce that character, and you, the train car, the coupling that holds the two together is faith. And what is faith? Faith is a daily dependence upon God to produce his character in you. It's practical. It is when you and I take God's promises to the bank. When we look at what he has said and we believe him. We really take him seriously. And in that confidence, we rest in him. Now, to be clear, this faith is not resignation and it is not laziness. It means yielding yourself up to God moment by moment and day by day and believing that as you do, he will do his good work in you. It is faith that works, but it doesn't work by climbing a ladder. It works by following the engine. Faith working through love. So you don't live the Christian life by waking up in the morning pulling out your ledger book and keeping track. 
or looking up the ladder and starting to climb. And if you're living the Christian life that way, you will end up in despair. Instead, you live the Christian life by waking up in the morning and remembering, as Paul did, that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And when you remember that, you know you can trust him with this day and this problem. You know you can believe that if you obey him, he will do what's right. And then you put your feet on the floor and you walk forward depending upon his power and not your own. That's faith. And as you do that, God's character will flow into you. Brothers and sisters, I really want to be a spirit-filled Christian. And I want us to be a spirit-filled church. And that does not look like dramatic demonstrations, miracles, speaking in tongues. That looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And those things line up perfectly with the law of God. Against those things, there is no law. So I plead, I plead with myself, and I plead with you in your personal life as a believer. Don't fight in the power of the flesh. Look to God who can change you. Believe him and allow his power to work. In your home life, as you struggle with problems in your marriage, as you struggle with problems with your children or with your parents. When you rely upon the flesh, you will discover that the works of the flesh come out. Envy, strife. But when you rely upon the Spirit, He begins to produce His character in you. In your church life and in your ministry to others. Don't revert to a practical atheism that says that you can make a difference in this program or this evangelism opportunity by striving hard in the flesh. Instead, yield yourself up to God and ask him to do his work through you. The danger of that is that there's no glory left in it for you. The danger of it is that Christ is all and you are nothing. But that is your hope. Not you, but Christ in you. May Christ be all and we be nothing. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would indeed produce this character in us and that our church would increasingly be characterized by the fruits of the Spirit. Not because we are such good people who are so good at making those fruits come out of us, but because by faith we depend upon you and you in faithfulness produce the fruit in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.